Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit us at perennialleader.com. Hey friends, Joshua here. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Nancy Sherman, the author of the new book, Stoic Wisdom, Ancient Lessons for Modern Resilience. Nancy has a PhD in philosophy from Harvard and has worked with the military for several decades in connection with stoic ethics, post-traumatic stress, and moral injury. In this episode, we discuss the rise of stoicism, finding calm, managing emotions, the art of stoic living, a call for a healthy modern stoicism, and much more. I think you're going to enjoy this one. Please welcome the wise and gracious Nancy Sherman. Hi, Nancy. Thank you for being on In Search of Wisdom. My pleasure. Nice to be here, Joshua. Well, I am happy to have you here. Congratulations on the new book, Stoic Wisdom, Ancient Lessons for Modern Resilience. I really enjoyed the book and I think you did a wonderful job with it. How does it feel to have it out in the world? It feels great. It was my pandemic baby. And (laughs) maybe maybe we're coming around the corner now. So it it feels wonderful. And it kind of wrote itself. And so I just was thrilled at how it came to be. I love that. Before we get into the conversation about the new book, as a retired veteran, I wanted to express my deep gratitude for the work that you've done throughout your life to help veterans. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. It's really been my honor, and it's one of the highlights of my career to work with military community in service and as veterans. Mm, That is great. I was hoping we could begin the conversation in I've already kind of provided an introduction with some details on your background, but just a couple questions around getting a PhD in philosophy from Harvard. I'm really curious, what led you initially into a career in in philosophy? Well, let's think about that. I was always a bit of a bookworm, and I excelled in academics. And I graduated from women's college, and the thought was you would become a professional of some sort. So I was set in that career. And the world was kind of narrow. You could be a doctor, a lawyer, or you could be a professor. Or, you know, I have a tradition of teachers in my family, especially my husband's family. So, you know, the role models around me were teachers and professors. So that's sort of how I came to to go that route. Philosophy was sort of a process of elimination. I got to college and I thought I was going to do psychology. But at that point, it was behavioral psychology, just Skinner. And I was running a rat in a lab that was actually fun. I learned about pleasure zones and pressing levers and all that, but it wasn't what I had in mind. And then I thought maybe anthropology, because I was always interested in what makes up for a human being? What's the defining feature? So I figured anthropology would be a good start. But anthropology led me to bones and fossils and things like that. That was what they did at Bryn Mawr where I went. 
And then the third one was political science, but it was mostly statistical analysis, quantitative political science. That wasn't what I had in mind. It was sort of more political philosophy. So literally, it was a process of elimination. And that's how I ended up where I ended up. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious, in your PhD, how much time was maybe dedicated to the topic of this book, Stoic Philosophy? Well, I specialized in ancient ethics, that is ancient Greek ethics. So my own PhD was in Aristotle, in Aristotle's ethics. And I ended up writing a PhD on that. And then my first published book was on Aristotle's ethics called The Fabric of Character. So I have to say my first love really has always been Aristotle. As an undergraduate, I studied Aristotle metaphysics and attribute my love of Aristotle to a very, very gifted teacher who I studied with. And in the academic world, the Stoics came kind of late. You know, in part, the texts were really hard to get hold of. They're bitty, little bits and pieces scattered, the Greek ones at least. They're not well preserved. It's not like you're reading a big chunk like Plato or Aristotle. And then the uh, Roman Stoics were popularizers, and you really couldn't get deep into the philosophy unless you went backwards to the ancient Greek. And so at some point in my own PhD work, fellow scholars were beginning to really lay the groundwork of exposing the texts of the ancient Greek Stoics so that we could do real scholarly work. But those texts were not really available easily. The translations weren't so good. And, you know, we always had the lobe. Those are the facing pages of the Greek and the English or the Latin and the English. But newer editions and new scholarship was reserved for very few individuals. And then it kind of started to come into being. So I have to say I began with Aristotle's ethics. I really didn't do Stoic ethics until a little later. I came upon it almost as a more practical discourse when I was teaching at the Naval Academy and was called in to teach midshipmen. And when I got to the Stoics, the ship had arrived. It was clear this was their (laughs) philosophy. And in part because of Admiral Jim Stockdale, who had really used Epictetus as a salvation for his years in prison in the Hanoi Hilton, as it was called in North Vietnam. So then I wrote about it pretty seriously, because I was teaching and wanted to figure out what I knew and what I didn't know. And So one book led to another. (laughs) I love that. And I appreciate the background. Before you sat down to write Stoic Wisdom, what would you say was the goal of the book in a nutshell? I had been on a number of talk shows, some of them on the BBC, but a number of gatherings of folks on radio. And the theme that was always emphasized by colleagues and and interlocutors was self-reliance. It was in the Naval Academy, it was often suck it up and truck on, not a beautiful phrase, but or embrace the suck. And it was a kind of tough it out, largely grit that was constituted by self-sufficiency. You know, you could do it on your own somehow because you wanted to minimize dependence on externals. And from my understanding, first of ancient ethics, primarily Aristotle, the world was deeply social and with attachments. And looking then at the Stoics, that's continued. The theme is even more pronounced in a certain way, that it wasn't just the city-state or the polis, but the cosmos, the larger 
gathering of individuals, all of humanity, that we were connected in some way. And I wanted that theme to be the centerpiece of my work, because that's really what I think resilience is about. I think resilience on a healthy account is about knowing that your own well-being depends on social supports and that we are in a reciprocal set of relationships. And that's certainly what healthy resilience from most social science believes. And I I knew that was a centerpiece and a foundational stone in Aristotle's ethics, for sure. You know, two out of his 10 books, one-fifth are on friendship, human being as a social being, a political animal. And it was in Marcus, Aurelius, loud and clear. If you see scattered limb parts on a battlefield, disconnected from the torso, that's what a human being makes of herself when she's separated from others. That's Mm. about the fact that we're connected, integrated socially, and that we have to build social capital, social networks of resilience. So that became the cornerstone for me. I, I felt it, believed it. And in working with various communities, among them the military, a cadre is a cadre, and you depend on social supports. You're as connected as connected can be. But when it comes to seeking help, and I've been on many suicide review boards and other sad sorts of gatherings of individuals, the obstacles to finding help, to thinking it's okay to find help, to understanding that grit is socially built, were just there. And if I could do anything to break down barriers and see if it was in this ancient texts that were so relied upon, I would do it. So that was the motivation. Well, it seems like, at least to me, that really comes through in the book loud and clear, and I really enjoyed it. It seems like you see Stoic philosophy maybe as bigger and broader than we initially kind of emphasize some of those bits and pieces of it. It is. Well, first of all, Stoic philosophy is not just Stoic ethics. It's built on a foundation of physics and logic and a large system. They were system builders. And many of us, and especially those who look at it in more modern ways, are thinking primarily only about the ethics. So it is a broad philosophy. And it's also a philosophy meant to give you tips, ways of minimizing the stress, the distress, by being able to think about what really matters and how you can stake out as much control as you can stake out, but then retreat when you no longer can change things. It puts this in a very deep way. It has to do, of course, people know about emotions, but it's not stomping out emotions. The broader picture is a brilliant picture, like a really foresighted, prescient picture where emotions are cognitive. That's the probably leading contemporary view also in psychology and philosophy, that emotions are made up of judgments or beliefs. They're not just oohs and ahs and tickles and itches or sensations or pangs in your stomach. They're appraisals of the world that are charged. You know, they have a kind of a zing and a zest. And the Stoics think of that as expansion and contraction of the mind in some way. And then they have different levels of emotions. There's some that hit you all of a sudden, you haven't quite assented to them, like Daniel Kahneman, the famous economist and psychologist would say fast thinking. 
There are others that are more mediated cognitively, and those are ordinary emotions where you, they use the word assent, but you say yes to the fact that you have an impression of a threat out there or an offense. Someone really insulted you and you say they did. And then you have another judgment as part of this ordinary emotion. What am I going to do about it? Some people would go for revenge. Other people would say, it's nothing to me. I'll let it pass. And then a third layer of emotions are what they call good emotions. They're sort of like aerosols hitting the mean. They're the rational emotions that, that where you don't get too hot and heavy about any of this. You have judgments, but they're very, very calm, rational caution, rational desire, rational joy. And so they have this really rich account of emotions as charged judgments at different levels of cognition. And then they have this slightly crazier view where you have to get rid of some of them because they're hooked up to the wrong objects out there. Fear, it's a threat that is a life threat. Your fear is really about something that will totally undo you. Or your distress is about something that will really, really get you worked up in a tizzy. And they try to say, no, those things that you're getting attached to, you should just have a kind of mild approach or avoidance behavior toward them. Select or diselect. Think of them as indifference to be promoted or bad word, but dispromoted or demoted or diselected. And so they have a way that you can handle a lot of things because they change the values out there of the objects. And they also change your reaction to them. You know, when they change the value of the object, they're changing your judgment of it, that it's not as horrible. Now, some of that is really, I think, not so healthy. I'll just be honest. You know, there are certain things out there that really are horrible. If someone is really, really unjust or brutal to someone else, then that is not good. (laughs) It's not an indifferent. In my mind, it's a bad (laughs) that you should have an aversive reaction to in some way. You should respond, not with revenge or rage, but step in there to try to do something to ameliorate the situation. How does that connect with what you write about Aristotle's smart anger? So that's a good question. Aristotle thinks that there is smart anger, that the wise person knows when to be angry, toward whom to be angry, how angry you should be, and how to respond in that or with that anger what kind of reactions. And many people have trouble with anger because it's a runaway emotion. It gets hot real fast. It can take over your control centers in a certain way. You know, before you know it, you're enraged and that it's hard to modulate. And so some would argue, and the Stoics might be on the side of this at times, Seneca seems to suggest this, get rid of it. Anger is not a good emotion. It's not one that even in the judicious or proportionate manner is a good one. But that makes it very hard to know how to respond to injustice that you see or injustice toward yourself where you're badly treated or you see others who are the subject of horrible racism or brutality or who love gratuitous violence, say in a war zone or not acting either discriminately with lethal weapons or proportionately. And in fact, they're acting in ways that we would say are part of unjust conduct, whether or not there's court martials or not. 
And sometimes that's fed by anger. You know, a warrior's rage, Achilles is the famous example of someone who kind of loses it, Agamemnon loses it. So I think there is a place for the right sort of anger, but it has to pivot real fast. Maybe it's a motivational moment that then pivots fast to a way in which you harness the energy or the impulse and you act in a way that you believe responds to, say, the injustice. Here's an example that often came to my mind as I was writing the book. I had the absolutely distinct honor many years ago now (laughs) of interviewing Hugh Thompson. He was the warrant officer who flew over My Lai in the mid-60s and saw a massacre unfolding. He was a haunted man for a long time because the army didn't want to know about this. He blew a whistle and he gave this very famous order and it was regarding Lieutenant Kelly and Captain Medina, who were massacring innocent women and children, that he happened to see as he was flying his helicopter that morning in the mid-60s. He said to his side gunner, Larry Colburn, if they open up on me, shoot them. Open up on the GIs. Very controversial order for which he was, by some, viewed as a traitor. Many years later, now it's almost 30 years later, After this incident, mid-90s, he comes to the Naval Academy. I invited him to give a large, large public lecture. And we talked before and after in my office. I invited him again at Georgetown, maybe five years later. And he teared up the second time, saying, you know, I wasn't trained to see innocence slaughtered like that. He came to recognize that the people in the ditch were innocence because they were young children and women and Buddhist monks. And he said, I didn't think we did that. Maybe the Nazis did that, but I didn't think we did that. We could say the same right now about what's happening in the north in Ethiopia, in the Tigray area, horrible incidents. So at any rate, he said, I was hot as he flew his helicopter over that area that morning. I was really hot. And you could see him getting hot even as he remembered it 30 years later. Now, I think that heat was what allowed him to stop the helicopter, get out with only a sidearm, and confront Lieutenant Cowley and Captain Medina about the massacre that was ensuing. Estimates are that there would be another 300 to 500 more that would have been killed that day. That's anger in the face of raw, brutal injustice. And it didn't blind him. He acted very steadily. He had some cover. You know, he had two guys that were in the helicopter if he needed cover. But he wasn't a crazy man (laughs) by any means. And I often think of that when I think of righteous indignation. It was a sort of a telling example for me. It doesn't have to be the only way you can motivate just action, but it's one way. And this was a time when it was a successful intervention. Yeah, I I really appreciate that example. And it was tough to read how he was treated after that courageous act. It was very tough. He was haunted and isolated and did not tell his spouse what he had done or where he'd been. And many in the Pentagon just put in a circular file what went on. It needed to Mm -hmm. be ignored. But it was, I think, a key moment in the pullout in Vietnam. Any thoughts on differentiating from that righteous or smart anger from maybe a 
anger that we want to avoid of knowing where are we? What type of anger is this? Well, the Stoics give you some help here because the Stoics think that your anger is really cognitive. It's a judgment about something out there. You first have this impression that, say, there's a role that you've been insulted. That's sort of the ancient Greek kind of notion that someone unjustly offends you. And so it's, that's a judgment that someone did that and it's a value to judgment. And it's not pleasant. It's painful and it's wrong probably because it's unjustified, an unjustified insult. And then there can also be anger that simply, I don't like that person. That's anger that's fed by hatred. I don't like that person, and that person's in my way. That person doesn't look like me, and they're in my way. These are not self-defenses in the sense of there's a life threat out there, and you mm. feel threatened or afraid, and anger is needed in order to somehow get yourself in motion. These are really more hatred-fed kinds of anger. So that's some of it. There's also anger that just could be people have tempers, you know, maybe constitutionally could be fed by alcohol, drugs, trauma, you name it. People can be on edge for all sorts of reasons and it spills out and it's not clear where it is and it gets displaced. You can scream at your dog, your cat, your child, your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, girlfriend, because you had a crappy day at work. And someone laid into you, and now the most convenient object around is someone in the household. And then it can get abusive. Not only can it be angry verbally, but it can lead to all sorts of abuse. And we're seeing a very, very scary uptick in domestic abuse right now during the pandemic because people are cloistered at home, can't get out, and also they can't make the phone calls they need to make for help because there are people nearby who would accelerate the abuse were they to hear the phone call being made. It seems to be a statistical fact out there. So anger comes in all different flavors. We often talk about moral indignation, righteous indignation, moral outrage, resentment. You know, they have a moral flavor that others or you have been unjustly treated. But there's also aggression, pure and blank aggression or rage that has very little to do with unjust actions. Now, the Stoics think the only real reason for distress, this is a part that we don't typically buy. I don't buy. The only real reason for distress is if you do wrong, not if others do wrong and you are witness to it or victim of it, but if you as actor do wrong, then you might get distressed or angry. But the good person, and I mean a sage who rises only as frequently as 500 years, every 500 years, as Socrates. I mean, Socrates was no sage, but they give him as an example. You know, he's no, he's no saint. Most people aren't any saints, and they're typically, they become heroic figures, mythical figures. That said, the really ideal heavenly sage can do no wrong. So there's never any distress, anger in that person's life. But most of us aren't in that camp. So we feel distress and we often feel anger at the injustices by which we're treated and on behalf of others who are so treated. And if we didn't, I think we'd live in a horrible, horrible, disconnected, dysphoric world. It's complicated enough at the moment, yeah. let alone if we were to stamp out some of the social emotions that allow us to work on behalf of others. 
Definitely. To stay with emotions, these are challenging times, as you mentioned. What can Stoic wisdom teach us about coping with grief? The Stoics aren't always the best on grief, but they're better than many think. (laughs) So I'll say that. (laughs) Seneca says regularly that I'm, or at least he says it once or twice in the letters. I can't remember how many times. But he says that I'm the doctor as well as the patient. When you come here, you've come to a sick room. So he's the moral tutor, but they and he calls what he does therapy, therapy for the psyche, psychological therapy. Um, That's what they do. They're doctors of the soul, doctors of therapy. And he's the patient as well as the therapist. And what does he suffer from? He may have lost a friend. He suffers thinking that people who are much younger than him have died. It's one of the themes of one of the letters. And it was untimely. He sees cities burn to the ground. One that he mentions is Lyon, or if he's not seen it, but he knows about it, the French city of Lyon. And so he writes a consolation on the destruction of a city, a whole city raised. You know, think of Katrina. Think of the hurricanes that we've seen and and recent storms. So all of those are subject of grief. We've been in a pandemic, three million lost this year, over a half a million more than World War II, probably Korea, Vietnam together, of American losses in the current pandemic. It's very unevenly distributed. There's enormous inequity in who's died and access to health care and where you work and how vulnerable you are. So all of these and pre-existing conditions and, you know, all of this is, you know, I teach in a classroom and I see 30 tiles and I just don't know what all the stories are behind their lives. They're not in the classroom with me. They're on a screen. We can't be in the class right now. And I know some of are really, really hurting. And so we talk about grief. We read some poetry on grief. So the Stoics, they're a little bit like Queen Elizabeth at times. You know, how many tears can you shed and still have decorum? (laughs) This was a subject this week in the news a lot about, you know, Queen Elizabeth and how many tears did she shed in public at the funeral. (laughs) But there is, I mean, these are issues of decorum and etiquette. And each culture has its own version. And it's not so surprising that the Victorian culture and high English culture resonates a bit with some of the Roman culture of how you grieve, what you show. The Stoics will say, Cicero says, and not a Stoic, but a fellow traveler, forced here, and Seneca says the same, forced tears are not okay, but a few tears that are natural here and there are okay. That's the visible reaction. That doesn't say much about That's one judgment. How should I, they think it's voluntary. How should I respond? But there's another judgment. And that is, is it a real good that I've lost? Is losing my spouse the kind of good that makes or breaks your happiness? The loss of which makes or breaks your happiness. And they say your virtue is the real thing that makes or breaks. But these are supporting, I would call it a supporting cast, a large supporting cast. It would be very peculiar to think of our humanity as disconnected from the expressions of grief. So they find all sorts of ways to squeeze it in here and there, but they also try to find ways to prepare yourself for loss. So they give you life hacks for loss, 
And when they don't fully arm you, they discuss grief. You just mentioned around this disconnection, and you write in Lesson 3, something I really appreciated, was this notion of interconnectedness has deep Stoic roots as deep as the themes of self-reliance. Why do you think the notion of interconnectedness has maybe not been emphasized or highlighted as much as the self-reliance? Well, Emerson, who famously wrote an essay on self-reliance, read the Stoics. The Stoics were always in the air. They were easy to read. The Roman Stoics, you know, were street philosophers in a certain way. So they're easy to read, much easier than reading Kant, maybe, Immanuel Kant, German Enlightenment. But Immanuel Kant read the Stoics and was influenced. So, you know, and some of the more bombastic claims are are about self-reliance. Like Epictetus says someplace or other, your nose is running. What do you have a hand for? Use it. Meaning, you know, don't rely on someone else. Or you're in the ring and you're like a wrestler and you always can get up again. The athletic discipline of moral discipline is emphasized over and over and over again. And many find this one of the more attractive elements, toughening it up. Toughen your skin, toughen your psyche, view moral training as athletic training. And, you know, I think Seneca makes that clear. So if your followers are folks who have to endure a lot of deprivation, as, you know, many in the military do, and there's a, already an element of machismo and macho, then that's what you're going to pick up, maybe. But Marcus Aurelius is the supreme commander, you know, on the Danube, fighting the Germanic campaigns. And he says loud and clear that he couldn't do any of this without bringing to mind his mother, the grammarian who was his tutor, who wasn't carping about misspeaks or howlers, you know, was very generous. And he also has these metaphors about Howard, very connected. Now, for them, it's a cosmic connection, and that's diffuse over the whole of humanity. But it's still a, a sense of being integrated. And I'm not quite sure why that theme doesn't get picked up as much as the other. I think a lot of it has, you know, could well be Emerson picking up on essays on the self-reliance theme. And who the readers often are, people who wanted to be strengthened by a sense of self-sufficiency. Both themes are in there. And so interpreters, I think, have to really sometimes make hard choices. One question I have to transition to around lesson one, you write about the rise in popularity of Stoicism. How do you make sense of this rise in popularity? And somebody that is steeped in philosophy, is this anything that you saw coming maybe a couple of decades ago? Frankly, no. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly get the idea that the military had been bequeathed Stoicism through Jim Stockdale. And so when he parachuted down 1965, I believe, and said, this is James Bond Stockdale, leaving the world of technology and entering the world of Epictetus, five years down here, at least, something like that. And that was seminal for the Navy, Marines, or the same service branch, or, you know, Marines fall under the Navy. And it became very accessible for survival methods within the military. 
to read Epictetus and also skinny, very, very skinny. I repeat, you know, my students love the fact that I, (laughs) (laughs) at least if you're, if it's the handbook, it's all of 20 pages or something like that. It's a very quick read and it's hyperbolic at moments. Epictetus knew that he had to attract his audience was often 18 to 22 year old boys and had to give them worst case scenarios and jazz it up and there was a lot of exaggeration and so it's very punchy easy to read stuff so i kind of get it in the military in general well i think it's part of a general attraction to self-help philosophy if you're in an airport when we were in airports and <laughs> you go to a book seller in an airport you'll see a lot of self-help philosophies and so it can fall into that category because it has a form of meditation, very different from Eastern meditation, but its own form of meditation. And it combines self-help by and large, if you're careful with what the ancient Greeks and Romans were always concerned about, which is virtue, outward facing good character for the sake of self, but also others. So those are two reasons, military and that ethos that was always stoic from way back. But the military got kind of a new injection of it, care of Jim Stockdale, who, just to remind listeners, was the longest serving POW in the North Vietnamese prisoner of war camp, seven and a half years, two and a half years in solitary. It was his wife, Sybil, who successfully brought the POWs out of Vietnam to their liberation through her steady work in D.C. advocating on their behalf. And he was with John McCain, perhaps a better known POW. So military, Epictetus, easy to read. Maybe now I'm on three, self-help, a combination of self-help with virtue wisdom, which is quite attractive. And frankly, you know, I think the rise of podcasts like this one and other kinds of media online that allow you to get philosophy or religion in ways that aren't simply by reading books. I think those are amongst them. And some people may be looking for religion or the kinds of inspiration and guidance that religion gives, but in a secular way. The Greek Romans were on the cusp of Judeo-Christianity, less available intersections, I believe, you know, with the other great Abrahamic religion, Muslim. But I think those are amongst the reasons. One of my favorite parts of the book was the content in Lesson 8 on the nighttime meditations. And you provide an example of Seneca's, as he calls it, I guess, (laughs) self-interrogation. I noticed how Seneca was really, it seemed to be compassionate and generous with himself. It did not seem like a rumination or harsh self-criticism. And my question is, what advice do you have for listeners looking to integrate a kind of nighttime meditation with self-compassion? So I think the theme of self-compassion, self-empathy, is really critical and how to incorporate it into a Stoic practice is one of the things I really try to do in Stoic wisdom. So yes, he says he interrogates himself at night about all the missteps and misdeeds too harsh to his enslaved persons, very complicated relationship he has in the all Roman noblemen have with the full retinue of enslaved persons. 
another topic. Did he get too pissy at the guard at the door who didn't let him into a banquet hall? Was he sitting at the wrong place at a banquet, not near the head of the head dais, but some back table? So, you know, some of it seems quite trivial and you get a sense he's really bothered about that. I thought he was beyond that stuff. And others are, you know, maybe more substantive. So he is somewhat compassionate to himself. And that comes up a lot, I think, in stronger ways in his plays. So in particular, I have in mind Hercules Furens or Hercules Rages. Now, Hercules, as we know, is this man of 12 labors, stronger than anyone, an ox, and he comes back out of Hades, and he's about to pierce into the real world, his homecoming, to reunite with his family. But Juno, who's a very, very jealous stepmother, blinds him, and Hercules ends up killing his family. And when he comes to, sort of a theme in Greek-Roman tragedy, when he comes to, he can't bear to live with himself. The rage is so great, he's suicidal. And it's his father who says, essentially, stay your hand. The guilt is not yours, it was your stepmother who blinded him. And his best friend is even more direct. Use your heroic courage, essentially, to show self-mercy, to show self-compassion. That's really remarkable in my view. That's not what you think of as a stoic attitude, because you think of it as, you know, be as tough as you possibly can toward yourself and then critique yourself left and right and left and right. And if you haven't done that enough, go up and down and do it again tomorrow night. But that's not what we're being told. And I think that's extremely important. You know, we tend to think with what psychologists call hindsight bias, if I only could have and should have, and then it would have been better. It could be survival guilt. It could be this accident was totally avoidable, but maybe it wasn't. Or maybe you have this much and, you know, an iota of responsibility, but not as much as you hold yourself accountable for. And or similar sorts of things when things don't go well, we are our first horrible enemy. Not the only one, but we're amongst our enemies. And self mercy is critical for our health. And so Seneca writes a famous tract on mercy, probably directed at Nero, because Nero really was horrific. But it was also, I think there's a touch of it about showing it toward yourself. It's very the perspectives change. You know, what we say to mm-hmm. others, we can also say to ourselves and what others say to themselves, they can say to you. And sometimes flipping those perspectives a little bit like a phone, you know, you take a selfie, but then you also flip it outward and take a picture of the world. Well, we do that with ourselves all the time. We look inward, but we also see ourselves in the image of others who are around us, or, you know, or we pull the best parts of them, or if they somehow show compassion toward us, Maybe that's a good reason for us to show compassion toward ourselves and learn about self-compassion through other regarding compassion. It's a method used often in therapy. It's an important method of switching perspectives in order to be somewhat more caring to yourself, especially at moments when you feel the end has come. Connected to that, you close the book with a way forward for a healthy modern stoicism. And you're right, Stoicism can help unite us to face our individual and shared challenges, but only when empathy and mercy course through the veins of reason. It's beautiful. To wrap up the conversation, I would love to get any thoughts on softening or educating our hearts to 
cultivate empathy and mercy in our lives? Well, I think we're currently at crossroads. This country is fairly young, but in my few years on this planet, it's as polarized as I've ever seen it. Maybe not as polarized as in the 60s, but we're close. And neighborhoods that once were built on reciprocity and kindness, here's a pinch of salt for you and I'll borrow a teaspoon of sugar tomorrow, that kind of thing. That is even getting fractured by which echo chamber you're getting your news from and the like. That's really horrible in my mind. It's the breakdown of civilization and society. And we have political leaders who are making this a battle for votes, (laughs) to be frank, or for funding, whatever the cause is. It's not for civility, that's for sure. And so when I think about empathy coursing through the veins, it's trying to hear what the other person is saying, not doing this for narcissistic reasons that, you know, I want to be elected tomorrow, I want a higher salary, I want more funding, whatever your walk of life is that puts you where self-interest rules, it's not only about that. You know, I teach ethics in an undergraduate institution that's a Jesuit institution. We're right now learning about the slaves, the enslaved Catholics from Maryland that were sold to build Georgetown's dormitories. For those Mm. students who are themselves raised in a Catholic tradition, who identify as African-American or Ethiopian or brown-skinned and have been raised by Catholics all their life in Jesuit schools, it was really hard to learn this. I will tell you, extremely hard. So we're now thinking about how in empathetic ways we can teach our students and move on, whether it's through reparations or inclusive conversations or ways of seeing the other, not as this reviled other who's somehow toppling us from our statist positions, but as all in it together. I think that's really important work. I've never felt more strongly that as an educator, we have challenges in front of us. I know my university feels this very, very strongly. And, you know, I'd also just say this, the Stoics actually give you a pretty interesting psychological way of handling some of what drives the animosity and hatred and the echo chambers. And that is, they say, you know, you've got a lot of ways of taking in the, they call it impressions, but seeing the world through personal bias that you're not even aware of. It's unconscious. This is one of their fundamental epistemological threads that you say yay or nay to impressions, but a lot of them come in real fast. But you can nip them in the bud at some point or reflect on them Again, Daniel Kahneman might say through slow thinking. Mm. You don't have to rely on the fast ones or stand back. And I've seen young individuals who have are teachers in Minnesota, actually, who are very moved by stoicism and bring it into their classroom to try to get young, young kids to not be as impulsive in their reactions, to not just go with the first judgment, but rather put a stopgap, a pause where their will enters and they say no to some of the perhaps self-serving or unreflected snap judgments that aren't so healthy. So I think the Stoics not only talk about things that we've been talking about, you and I, about self-empathy, other regarding empathy, self-mercy, compassion, but they also actually talk about how you can try to train how you see and give yourself slower ways of 
reflecting on your thought patterns and your habits of thought, whether it's at night or simply standing back. And did I really have to do that in self-defense? Was I reacting to the crowd? Is that part of my training? Is that in the rules of engagement? You're a military guy. What's in the rules of engagement right now? That sort of thing. So I think all those are real stoic techniques for training our habits of mind so we can be wiser, smarter, and more socially responsible to ourselves and to each other. Well, thank you so much. That was a lovely way to wrap it up. Our time flew by. I absolutely love the book. I encourage everyone to pick up Stoic Wisdom, Ancient Lessons for Modern Resilience. This has been a great conversation. Where would you point people interested in learning more about you? NancySherman.com is my website. And Stoic Wisdom can be purchased right now on that website, NancySherman.com forward slash go to books. And there's a link for you to use for your favorite bookstore. You may be pre-ordering, but the book is literally coming out of the printing press as we speak, and it will be sent. And you'll probably get your copies faster than I'll get my complimentary <laughs> copies. I can't wait to get my hands on it, but it's out. It's rolled off the printing press, that I know. So please share it. And it's really for all of us to be able to think about our lives and shared lives in saner and healthier ways. I love it. Nancy Sherman, I thank you so much for the time today. It has truly been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Josh. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you gained a bit of wisdom. You can check out the show notes at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support, please subscribe, share with a friend, and leave a review. It's a small thing that has a big impact. Until next time, be wise and be well.